0: Ah, Welcome back to Heard Tell. So you might have heard tell down in Florida, we got some shenanigans going on. Uh, The Mar-a-Lago search warrant of a couple weeks ago is getting tied up in court proceedings as we figured it would. Now there has been the request by the Trump folks of a special master and a stay on the criminal investigation. And over the Labor Day weekend, they got it. Uh, A federal judge named Cannon has issued a ruling. It's 24 pages. We are going to link to it. Ordinary-Times.com. You can read the whole thing for yourself. Please do, because there's a lot of people commenting on it that didn't read it and didn't even read somebody that knows how to read things uh, before they commented on it. And there's a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth on both sides. Folks, everybody just calm down. Let's turn the noise down on this real quick. What did the judge rule? What did the judge not rule? Again, read this whole thing for yourself. But this is one judge's ruling. Now, the DOJ has to respond to it. There's a couple parts to this. There's a nuts and bolts parts to this. When this goes to a special master, which has been agreed to, now they have to appoint one. The way it works is both sides will appoint a list of people they find suitable. The judge will pick one. They also have an ability to challenge it. So this thing might go for quite a while. There's also the part of this where the judge temporarily enjoined the DOJ from using the documents they recovered and other materials they covered from whatever ongoing investigation. Now, there's something really important we need to point out here that's been caterwauling on the internet. That did not stop the entire DOJ investigation. They just can't use what they took from Mar-a-Lago until the judge releases it or makes another ruling. Whatever else was going on still continues apace. Now, obviously, this will slow that down. Long story short, This is going to drag out for quite a while in the courts. Now, does the DOJ's got a little bit of a problem here because do they appeal it, which will drag this out even longer, or do they not appeal it? Which means they got to go through this process. Either way, we're looking uh, a couple of weeks before we figure out the special master part of this. Of course, there's a lot of politics involved here. Of course, there's a lot of cultural stuff involved here too, because this is an election year and the election is coming. I'm sure there are folks who would like to just run out the clock on this thing and push it until after the election. That may well happen just in the due course. It may not. And people have strong feelings about former President Trump, either which way. There's a couple things I want to point out to you that you need to do some homework on before we continue to cover this story, okay? You need to study up on what is and isn't executive privilege. You need to study up on how the classified document system actually works. No, you can't just say something's classified and unclassified. It's a little complicated than that. There's some aspects where you can do that as a president. Problem is the current president can also reclassify it. See, this gets gray area really fast. So read up on how the classified system works so that you're prepared for the discourse to come. As far as the special masters go, once they actually appoint one, I'm sure they're going to have all kinds of scrutiny on them. Judge Cannon that issued this ruling has been getting absolutely filleted in social media for a lot of reasons. One is, was appointed by Donald Trump, so you know where that one's going. Two is, there's some things in here legally that a lot of people take exception to. But is this order the end of the world? No, it's not. Is it the end of the DOJ investigation? No, it is not. This is one step in the process, and there's going to be a whole lot more steps in this process. What have we told you from the beginning? It's an investigation. You're not going to lose Twitter points or Facebook points by waiting until the investigation plays out before you hang yourself out on the line on what's really going on. We do know some particulars now. We know this was a long-running investigation. We know there was a lot of back and forth between the DOJ and the FBI and the Trump folks on trying to get these documents back. And when that failed, that's when they went to the search warrant. We also know that some attorney for Trump, there's reports out there who it is, but until we know for sure, we won't say, signed off that they had turned everything over, which clearly they did not because they found it in the search warrant items. And there's things, even in the Trump's legal filing that precipitated this ruling, which you can also read at ordinary-times.com for yourself, read the whole thing, where they admit to some things in their filing that they don't admit to on their social media posts or on their release statements. This is a lot of stuff to wade through. It's complicated, but the rule of law is important. And part of maintaining the rule of law is to not just react to stuff you see on Twitter. Read up on this stuff. Learn how the legal system works. Learn how your government works. Learn how executive privilege does and doesn't work. Learn how attorney-client privilege does and doesn't work. Learn how the warrant system does and doesn't work. We just did an episode on warrants last week on Hurtel right here. You can go back and listen to it. And more than anything else, learn to take in a wide perspective. Don't just take some talking head's word for it. And don't just pound send on some social media post of somebody that's popular or because it's somebody that shares the same ideology as you do. Truth is a little more complicated than that. And this is going to be a very complicated situation. More Hurtel later. Heard tell. So you might have heard tell that folks have been talking a lot about college lately, especially with the loan forgiveness scheme that the president has come out with. Here's a little background on that. We're not going to talk about the loans themselves, but on people that have major regrets. That is, they regret their majors. Uh, Washington Post here opened with that little uh, piece of good business for an opening line. This is Andrew Van Dam writing uh, well on him. He said nearly two in five American college graduates have major regrets that they regret their major. The regretters include a healthy population of liberal arts majors who may be responding to pervasive social cues. When he delivered his 2011 State of the Union address, former President Barack Obama plunged math and science education and called out Americas to out-innovate, out-educate, and out-build the rest of the world. We haven't done that. We sure have outspent everybody else on per capita per student, but we'll talk about that some other time. Since then, back to Andrew Van Damme. The number of new graduates in the arts and humanities has plunged. Meanwhile, nearly half of the humanity and arts majors have studiers remorse as of 2021. Engineering majors have the fewest regrets. Just 24% said they'd wish they'd chosen something else. As a rule, those who studied STEM subjects, science, tech, engineering, mathematics, are much more likely to believe that they made the right choice. There doesn't seem to be much relationship between loans, gender, race, or social selectivity and your regrets, though, as you may have guessed, our analysis of the Fed data says that the higher your income is, the less you regret your major in college. Funny how that works out. Now, there's a lot of charts and graphs here, um, but the one I wanted to point out to you is this data point. In the decades since our national pivot to STEM, 2011 to 2021 is the data set here, the number of people graduating with computer science degrees has doubled. Every STEM field notched significant gains. Nursing, exercise, science, sports medicine, medicine, environmental engineering and math and science statistics are all up by at least 50% in humanity, only two increase cultural, ethnic and gender studies and linguistics. What's really interesting here is you have to go way down this list before you get to culture and ethnic studies and linguistics. Look at the majors that are in front of them. Criminal justice, psychology, economics. This is working backwards. Physical science, law, agriculture, public administration, arts, physics, criminology, biology, computer and electrical engineering, engineering, environment and conservation, health and medical, math and statistics, exercise science, nursing, and the aforementioned computer science that has grown almost 150% in the last decade. What is this telling us? There's something going on inside of higher education where people know they need a tangible skill set. There's nothing wrong with humanities. There's nothing wrong with studying humanities. You need to do that. There's a reason there are humanitarian courses required, no matter what course of study you do at a college, university or community college. But if you make your career out of that, you're also pigeonholing yourself into some very specific things. You have a business degree, you can go do about anything you want to. You have an English degree, you can still have a whole lot of options. If you have a very specific humanity degree in some strange language, or in a specific study of a specific culture, you got less options. Now, a lot of those people are looking to have academic careers, and there's nothing wrong with that either. But there's only so many people that are going to fit in that pool. Folks are realizing that if you want to have a living, and you want to have upward mobility, and you want to have options in your career, you're going to need tangible skill sets, not just acquired knowledge. That's the undercurrent to some of this current debate. People that are taking out student loans and are upset about it are usually the folks who can't make enough money now to pay off their loans. Now, a lot of people just want to assign blame there, but aside from whose fault that is, and the system is predatory, and it is people's responsibility when they sign on the dotted line, somewhere in the middle of there, we got to understand that this system is funneling people into college degrees, whether they want them or not. And if they funnel them into things like humanities, they need to be more upfront and transparent about their job prospects. Folks that are upset about their degree choices is not a new thing that's been going on as long as people have been getting degrees. When you start throwing debt on top of it and you start putting a predatory system on top of it, and now we're putting government schemes where the 60% of Americans who did not go to college are going to wind up with increased costs in various things to pay off the loans of those that did, this is a conversation we need to have as a root cause as well. It's not just paying for college and who goes to college. It's the quality of the college and what they're learning once they get there, and that involves everybody because everybody's going to end up having to deal with this mess at some point because there's no end in sight to the issues with higher education in America. More tell right after this. <laughs> Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, promises made, promises kept. We talked the UK Tory election and by default, the new Prime Minister a couple of weeks ago and our friend Lettuce Bromrowski. Here she is. She promised to come back and discuss it. And as we record this, my friend, uh, not even about an hour ago, we saw Liz Truss roll up on number 10. Y'all have yourselves a new Prime Minister.
1: Yes, we do. Very, very exciting times here in the UK. There's been... I mean, quite literally so much going on. And to be honest, everyone's rather unenvious of the position that Liz has found herself in at the moment. So she was voted in yesterday, technically winning 57 percent of the vote to Rishi Sunak's 42 percent of the vote, which in and of itself was actually quite a big surprise to the British public. I mean, throughout these past five or six weeks that we've seen Everyone has been saying that Liz has been the clear front runner all the way. In many ways, it would be a complete landslide. And yet, really, she she only got 57%. To put that into perspective, uh, Boris Johnson in 2019 got 66% of the vote. So... Already, that is slightly showing that there still remains these kind of divisions within the Tory party. And over the next week and the coming months, really, that's going to be a major pulling point on her point is, although this has technically been a win, over half of the Tory members who could vote in this didn't vote for her. There were 50 MPs who refrained from voting um, for either Rishi or Liz, full stop. Um, and only three MPs uh, sort of transitioned from Richie's campaign to Liz's campaign. So although that you know she's got in, she's won. That's fine. Well done, her. There's much, much more work to be done to make sure that the Tory Party remains as one and goes forward, remaining as one.
0: Yeah, let's start in the party, though, before, because she's gonna, she's got some real headwinds as prime mm. minister. We'll get to that in just a second, but let's start within the party, though, because the narrative proved to be true. The narrative was there's going to be the Rishi and then everybody else vote. He would be very popular within the party, and then when it went to the people, the larger party, I mean, it was going to invert, and Liz Truss was going to be the favorite. That's pretty much how it played out. But that's also kind of the roots of what you were just saying is we knew there was going to be some division. We knew this wasn't going to be a run. It was a healthy victory, but it wasn't a runaway victory. Like you said, it's not the 60-40 you usually see in the last three or four of these. That's really the core of this was you have the Bors thing happen. People really didn't know how to react to it. People didn't know how to deal with him, although to his credit, he basically stayed out of this, uh, which some people wondered whether he would or not. He did. This is the core to the problem here is she's already got all these other headwinds she may have the most fractured Conservative Party of any Conservative Prime Minister in recent memory going forward.
1: No, completely. And I, there there have been a few things that have arisen in the British media um, since the win yesterday. One of the most notable, although you never want to overanalyze these situations too much, one the most notable was yesterday when her name was announced as the winner. Rather than what is usual and rather courteous, you turn to your opponent, you shake their hand, then you go up on stage and you give your speech she in fact sort of powered on past him and went straight up on stage and in many ways sort of shunted him in that way um but like you said this has so far been an election very clearly for the tory or conservative party leader the real election and the one that's coming up will be this general election which happens in you know, 18 months or so, two years or so, we can't quite predict that. Um, but I imagine we're gonna see a huge change in the way that she is presenting herself. Now that she's got power, she's going to have to appeal to the wider public. And from all the polling that we've seen up to this point, Rishi has been the one who's been far more popular with the wider public than Liz Truss and so she's not only going to have to turn around the opinions of her own um, other party members but now she's going to have to turn around opinions of the general public and Liz Truss even five weeks ago when we first spoke um, she she was no one's first choice, you know, she she was almost always sort of at the bottom of those first rounds of removing people and kind of once someone lost out, so Tom Tugendhat, he got kicked out and then Kemi, they got kicked out. Um, she sort of absorbed their voters and their MP supporters, but she didn't really ever, unlike Rishi, start off with that big base of MP supporters.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about Liz Truss herself, though, real quick, and then we'll go back to Rishi Sunak and then the U.K. in general, because she's the prime minister for however long, although there's already speculation when this general election is going to be. Mm. Who is she? She has a really interesting background. Her parents was a, a college professor and a nurse. So, you know upper middle class middle class kind of an upbringing she also lived in scotland briefly as a child so she's got some experience around the uk i'm sure uh nicholas sturgeon will just love that um sorry in joke um but she's been a even though she's relatively young she's been in politics most of her career she has that kind of under the radar kind of political career where she just kind of kept climbing the ladder and then yeah. you know it's the old literary thing gradually then suddenly all of a sudden this election comes it's like oh liz Truss is the favorite and you can't she's at the bottom of all those polls like you said but all the people that really knew what they're talking about is like liz Truss is going to win this even when she was at the bottom of the polling because of the way the per- how does her biography and her path to the premiership really set her up going forward that piece of it before we get into the politics and the ideology and all the mm-hmm. rest of it, her as a person where she came from how she got here What should we take from that, especially as an audience from afar that's just kind of learning it through the media?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you really quite well laid out there, she sort of started her life in Leeds. And then actually, as you said, which I didn't actually know, went and had grown up in Scotland for a bit. So she does have quite a good um, view of the UK as the whole, on a whole, sorry. Um, But what I think is important here is that she is rather understated and she has been in politics for a very long time doing things under the radar. She's not like Boris Johnson in that way. She doesn't have to showbo all the time or, you know, go out and sort of have flashy parties or be flashy and in front of the media all the time. She's got her own persona in that sense. And actually, just, just a moment ago at 4pm, we saw her speech outside her first speech as prime minister um and it gave off a rather more somber and serious tone um that i think will be sort of the who she is going forward she's not going to be the very flowery languaged boris or the very overt boris or making jokes all the time she is more serious and i think a lot of that clearly does come from her background and her past political history where she's just sort of got the job done and kept going forward. For example, like when she was international trade sec and we had just left Brexit and we needed all these trade deals done and got over the line in order to sort of move on to the next step and keep pushing forward with this huge swathe of uh, new issues and policies we had to come up with because of Brexit. Um, But she got those done and she got those done in a way that I think was professional rather than look at me, look how amazing I am.
0: Yeah, I, I will miss Boris busting out classical Greek and the original Greek from time to time. That was one of the more fun things he did. My my dad was a Greekophile, so I'm used to that. Um, one piece, Something you just mentioned, though, also goes to her background. She wasn't always a conservative. She actually was a liberal Democrat to start out with. She switched mm-hmm. over in 96, Then when she stood for election in the early 2000s, she went with the Tory party. I think some of that, some people will call it pragmatism. Some of it will call it whatever they want to call it. Somebody who has been on the other side, she obviously understands it and has a unique viewpoint from it. Is that part of the unsplashiness? She knows she's got headwinds here. She knows she's got a very steep hill to climb here. She has a reinvigorated labor party to deal with. She's got a lot against her, but she's not somebody that's just a system person that just came up in one ideology. She's worked through this in her own head. Is that where some of this comes through, where she's going to have to try to reach out? She's actually got an ability to do it because she used to speak those words and those buzzwords in that language.
1: It's very interesting that you say that. It was actually one of her sort of most fierce criticisms against her when she was first entering this leadership was that she has once been um, a Lib Dem. And actually, I'm not 100% sure about that, but yeah, she's definitely been a Lib Dem. um, And that was sort of a criticism. However, I think, like you say, that sort of, I don't know, she was a Lib Dem when she was at university, for example, and people's opinions change, their lives impact how their opinions change. and I think that just shows that she in her own mind grew up. And like you say, she worked through her own ideas to get to that own point on her own, rather than, I don't know, being influenced by someone's parents or being influenced by the friends that you surround yourself with kind of thing. She got to the point and the viewpoint that she's decided on on her own by working through where she decided that her opinions landed and i think in many ways that makes it more powerful that she she really does know where she lands ideologically now because she's she's been through it all um and going back to what you said in her her um fight against labor i think one of the biggest things we've seen over the last few months really not only a few weeks is that the Conservatives own worst enemy is the Conservatives. Labour in my mind have been entirely ineffectual in these past few months from back when Boris was Prime Minister purely because they seem to have been unable to get ahead. They are ahead in the polls at the moment technically but they've been handed scandal after scandal, criticism after criticism, chaos after chaos on a plate by the Conservatives and they've been entirely unable to get ahead, get on top of that and prove themselves this country that they should lead realistically right now, they should be miles ahead of the conservative party in terms of proving to the country that they can lead us. And yet they've been sort of unable to do that.
0: Yeah. But what they do have, let Bromowski joining us is a head start because of this process, because it was a drug out, because we kind of knew, the, especially the last few weeks, you could tell the way Rishi Sunak, carried, since the debates really, when they went to the hastings, you kind of knew where this was going. They've had it's been one way traffic in the media because you know Liz Truss is getting the job, but she doesn't have the job, so they can attack her as if she has the job, but she can't attack back because she doesn't have the job yet. Yeah. So this has been one way media traffic. She has taken a lot of slings and arrows, some fair, mm-hmm. some unwise. That's part of the gig. What have we seen in the last few weeks? Because it's it's all been one way. It's all criticism right now because she can't do anything to re- really respond back other than talk. Right. How has that affected things? Because that's just the reality of the media environment and the political environment until she is now in office, which happens today. Now she gets to respond. Yeah. She starts in the hole. Yeah. Is that fair to say?
1: Well, it's definitely fair to say one thing that should be noted is the government's actually been in recess for the past sort of months. So there haven't been any um, like prime minister's questions. For example, this Wednesday will be her first prime minister's questions um, in front of Keir Starmer, And it will be a very, very interesting moment to see how she handles it, how he handles it as well, whether he can really, you know, land some serious blows to the Conservative Party and whether she'll be very good at that at all. I mean, Boris, to be honest, I would say did incredibly well in the Prime Minister's questions debating. That was sort of his his sort of uh, highest quality in many ways. Whereas Liz Truss, we already know she's not a... She's not a public speaker. And I'm not sure. I'm not convinced, really, that she's going to be a great debater. Um, but the past few weeks, the media has certainly been getting very frustrated at the fact that, which is unfair to me, that they are unable to say what their policy is or what their plans have been um, or what they're going to be putting forward in the future to help with energy and taxes and housing and crime and all these different things but this next week she said that she will be putting out her plan um, and so this next week is going to be absolutely fascinating with all the new things that will be coming out the plans coming out it's going to be a real a real feast in many ways
0: yeah, I won't miss it because they they brought Sky News's app does it live. I never miss Prime Minister Questions because it's first thing in the morning here. I listen to it with my kids going to school. It's kind of a tradition. You mentioned it. This is always going to be the comparison. As a woman Prime Minister, she's going to mm-hmm. get compared to Theresa May. And, of course, Margaret Thatcher, fair, unfair, doesn't matter, especially Prime Minister Questions. Um, Theresa May did very well at it. Margaret Thatcher is legendary at it. Yeah. She's not that style, though, even though Theresa was more um, – Plutocratic, if that's a word, but she was very good at it. Of course, she had Jeremy Corbyn to work off of. She does get Keir Starmer, who's not exactly setting the world on fire. But the comparison—that comparison that comparison isn't going to hold up in her style when it comes to things like PMQ, when it comes to things like public speaking. What Mm. should she concentrate on style-wise? Because let's be honest, politics is style. You have to speak. You have to perform on TV. What do you think she should focus on when it comes to things like Wednesday morning? And it's just her and the dispatch box. And a whole lot of howling labor sitting across from her and some folks, frankly, behind her that she doesn't know whether she can really trust yet or not.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be very interesting. Um, I think, well, going forward for the Wednesdays, it's going to be very important that she has solid proof points that she's getting things done or that she's moving the dial in some way. And that's really the only thing that's going to hold off the fire, depending on how sort of aggressive Keir Starmer is towards her. If we go back to sort of the comparisons with Margaret Thatcher, which have been a sort of phenomenon here they've been everywhere from what she wears dresses how she talks how she acts personally from my opinion i find that a bit infuriating although margaret thatcher incredible woman in her own rights for a lot of what she's done you know she's she's in the history books as being this amazing prime minister Um, she was a prime minister 40 years ago, um, and that to me is something that she was presiding over entirely different times with different issues. I mean, Margaret Thatcher had the issues of the unions on her hands, and that was the greatest issue of that time, whereas nowadays the unions, they really don't hold that much power. Um, And there there are other things that are just, we now rely so much more on technology in a digital world, whereas in the 1980s, those just weren't as prevalent as they are today. So although I understand in terms of maybe policy or economics or how some people want to think of it, it's important. I think we need to refrain from looking back too much um, and comparing too much because these are entirely different times.
0: Yeah, I agree. Lettuce Bromowski, we're going to continue to talk about um, Liz Truss's elevation to the premiership. She is now the prime minister of the UK. She has met with the Queen. She has stood in front of the famous black door at number 10. It's all official. She's going to continue to break it down for us, including international reaction and the politics of that, her vanquished foes on her own side and her opponents in the Labor Party. More with Lettuce Bromowski right after this. Her tale continues. Welcome back to Herd Tale. We're continuing to talk about Liz Truss, the new uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Our friend over yonder, lettuce Bromofsky, is back helping us break it all down. Uh, let's start with The Vanquished here, Honor the Fallen, as that crazy uh, Hunger Games movie my kids keep watching <laughs> over and over and over and over again. Uh, Rishi Sunak, where does he go from here? I know he resigned his post, which was kind of expected. A little bit of chilliness between the two of them at the announcement, which... You can make more or less of it. I don't know. It, it, I don't think it was overly contentious by British standards. We've seen a whole lot worse, but it wasn't overly friendly either. Where where do we put all this, do you think?
1: I think that there won't be a position for him in the main cabinet. Um, I mean, in the cabinet, sorry. Um, I don't believe that he himself would want that position going forward. Um, although throughout this entire campaign, they've been talking about how they'll unite behind it and all of these different things, and they're one party. And in, in many respects, that's right. All their all their viewpoints, they agree on far more things than they disagree on. I think that for him now, he, he wouldn't accept a position. There was a lot of talk um, up until today that he might be offered health secretary because he was obviously not going to be offered um, chancellor of the Exchequer, considering a lot of the campaign was built around their differences on economic opinions. Um, and, but Health Secretary. However, that has today gone to Theresa Coffey, who, what we're seeing with Liz's new cabinet, again, one of the criticisms that is coming out of this is that she's appointing a group of people who are largely inexperienced and unheard of um, outside of the Westminster bubble, I should say. So, Theresa Coffee, who today, the first appointee of um, Deputy Prime Minister and Health Secretary, has risen from her position as. Uh, secretary for the work and pensions um, and prior to this she'd held a few roles in the Whip's office to now being pretty much at the centre of government holding the second most powerful position in this country and health secretary which is in and of its own right a huge role uh, within the cabinet um, and it's been a significant rise for her. There have also been other people like James Cleverly, who's predicted to be the foreign secretary um, but again That's a name that people haven't really heard of before. Um, And this sort of goes on and on. The only one that she has, or supposedly, this is all speculative, except for Theresa right now, um, is that Kwasi Kwarteng will be the new chancellor of the Exchequer. um, And he has previously been secretary for business Um, and is believed that he's done a very great job there, to be honest. He also runs COP. Um, and he's been in charge of all of that Um, but again it's this what we'll be seeing actually right now probably while while we're discussing this but people will be going into um that black door into number 10 and they'll be being appointed these positions um and so really that will be her first major step as prime minister to see who who's going to get these roles and what sort of future that means we'll be looking at
0: yeah and rishi sunak he's a young guy he's in his early 40s he's very ambitious. He's really smart. He sees what everybody else is seeing. Everybody is pronouncing it, and is like, look, there's going to be a general election sooner rather than later. He mm-hmm. probably just wants to stay clear of whatever happens and then he wants to be the next guy up. Is that kind of what everybody's seeing here is he's just going to step yeah. aside, sit on his back bench, let it fall where his may, and then he'll come in mm-hmm. and see what happens next and be the next guy up.
1: Yeah, there's there's so much truth to that in many ways, which almost seems unfair, but Liz Not even trusts, a criticism. I
0: mean, that's just kind of, you know, that's the road in front no, of him. Completely. I don't really blame and him, but for, that's what it is.
1: No, no, it, uh, completely. And for her to even be seen in history as good, she's almost going to have to be exceptionally great in many ways. And although we say she's got two years till the next general election or 18 months or whatever, realistically, she's actually only got about... I would say two months until we're in the depths of this winter energy crisis that we're going to be in. And if she fails to meet the needs of the people then and fails to sort of get a solid plan in place that really will support people and not just maybe blanket uh, giving money out or blanket spending, but a real solid plan that will help people through this winter, then she might have a chance going forward. But if she doesn't do that, I think she's going to be out in the cold, pardon the pun.
0: Well, it's not a pun because the number one, cri- we've talked about it with you, our other UK friends, we just talked about it with our German friends last week. Cost of living and energy is the is the overriding issues right now. And in the yeah. UK, winter's coming and it's looking bad. It's not looking good for the British economy right now. It's not looking good for the, especially the working and middle class and down economies. The cost of living is high. Fuel prices are looking to be high. This is going to be a rough winter politically and physically in the yeah. UK what what is she, i know she came out with a big energy plan right off the jump but beyond mm. just a plan how does she sell a hard winter because it's going to be hard no matter what she does let's just be honest here how does well, like, she how does she sell that to people this kind of we just got to stick through a tough winter you're the new yeah. guy and things go bad you get the blame she knows this what's her pitch
1: well, that was, that was a lot of what we heard in her speech just now, which was much more sombre and serious. And it, the sort of overriding quote that's come out of that is um, we're going to ride through this storm together. And she's been very much corralling this idea of togetherness. But you're right. The biggest shock for households this winter is, is going to be these sort of crippling increases in gas and electricity bills. We're going to see our energy price cap rise. 80% from about £2,000 to about £3,600 um, in October, um, and this is again predicted to jump to about £5,400 in 2023 in January 2023, which is is phenomenal. I mean, even not we're not just talking about you know the lowest in society, the poorest in society. At this we're talking about a huge chunk of people in society. Who will genuinely be unable to pay these bills? What she has been coming out and saying is promising that um, she, well, not promising just yet, but saying that she will freeze um, the cap on gas and electricity bills at about two thousand five hundred. So this is still an increase from what it is at the moment, uh, but she'll put this freeze on for the next two winters, um, and it will uh, allow, I think, about I can't remember exactly, sorry, but this that's meant to help a you know a higher proportion of people with this, but. Again, it's going to create a cost of about £90 which will be supposedly funded by government loans. And again, it's adding to the more and more debt. And the criticism at the moment is this is simply kicking the can down the road for the next generation to deal with. Um, But she, she does have to prove herself and she is in some ways going to have to restructure The energy market that we have because of the pressure that we've seen over the last year from Russia, um, particularly in Europe, more than the UK specifically. But that that gas pressure that we're being put under, it's 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 coming to a head and it's going to be a very, very tough, tough winter here.
0: Okay, she can't just get by on the cost of living stuff, although that'll be the dominant issue. Mm -hmm. You got to juggle balls. And she's got some big ones. Northern Ireland's a mess. There's a migrant crisis. There's labor issues. We've got wide ranging strikes through the UK in the transportation sector right now. Ukraine's not going to be going anyway. And the European pressure is going to be immense in the winter for the same reason the cost of living is going to be a problem in the winter in the UK. What of those is something that she better get on real, real fast? Who's her first foreign phone call on dealing with some of that? Is it dealing with, you know, Ireland, Northern Ireland? Is it there's a lot of trouble with the French right now in the migrant crisis in the channel. Does she call Olaf Schultz in the polls and be like, we got to do something to Ukraine? Who's her first phone call do you think here?
1: Well, we know what she's already said is that she's very um, adverse to Chinese expansionism. That's one of her main points at the moment. She's always said that we need to be very careful, tread very carefully with them going forward. But I think for now, although that's she's very publicly against a lot of that and, um, Chinese government, uh, Chinese companies, sorry, coming into the UK, I think for now the priority will remain the war in Ukraine. Um, she's always been very supportive of of UK helping fund and support and send defence to um, the Ukraine and things like that. I think that'll be very high on her list of showing that she maintained support. We know that Boris was an incredibly popular figure um, in Kiev and were, most people in Ukraine were so shocked when uh, it was said that Boris would no longer be the leader of the United Kingdom. So showing Ukraine that we will still stand and we will still support them, I think, is going to be top of her list. What I think will be an even bigger priority at the moment is dealing with this NHS backlog that we're having and issues within the NHS, because I think that's something that the people of the UK will be very, very keen to see sorted out. And although many prime ministers have been saying this for many years kind of thing... The, the issues that we've had that are hanging over us because of COVID are becoming unmanageable. We've had people who've been sort of left to die because they've had heart attacks or strokes and ambulances have taken hours and hours to come to them when realistically they should they should be there instantly. You know, our 911 system is, is falling apart. We've got one in 10 um, GP consultants who are expected to retire in the next 18 months and we haven't got the the inflow of younger generations to support them. Um actually just yesterday Truss was told that she had 10 days to address NHS nurses pay or they would go on strike. So this this she seems to be fighting a battle on every front at this point.
0: Yeah. Welcome to number 10. Not an easy yeah. job as anybody that's ever been in that building will tell you. Um you mentioned it real briefly though. So just to touch on it kind of put a bow on this whole thing. Mm. Just prognosticated. I know it's a guess, but this whole thing's going to come down to when this next general election is. You mentioned it. She's really only got a couple of months to really get her stamp on this thing. If it's an eighteen to two years out, that would make her. And let's just say she doesn't survive it. That would make her the shortest reigning prime minister of the modern era. <laughs> that's that's the hill she's looking at climbing. Historically, yeah. she's got. Let's just be honest here. She's got. No matter what your politics are. She's got a whole lot against her just right from the go here, doesn't she?
1: Yeah, Uh, she's got so much. It's almost it's almost un unclimbable in many ways. But as you say, the election, like the maximum it can really be at this point will be in two years. But they're going to want to put their best foot forward when they call it. So I don't believe it's going to be in two years. I imagine that they'll have to call it. As soon as sort of you know something goes right, something's in their favor, perhaps they overtake Labour for the first time in the polls, perhaps she does incredibly well in this winter coming up, and they will call it as soon as they have a slight glimmer of hope that it's swinging in their favor because two years is no time really at all, especially in the world of politics, to get things through and really change things out there and with recession predicted until 2025 you know we we she's going to have such a struggle even getting anything over the line so she's got to be putting her best foot forward for everything really now
0: never a dull moment with our friends over in the uk let us from love having you on let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you till we get you back which we're going to do because you're outstanding and we love getting your insight on these sort of things let folks know where they can follow you till we get you on her again
1: Thank you. You can follow me on Twitter at L Bromowski, which is B-R-O-M-O-V-S-K-Y.
0: And we'll link to all her current media hits on this stuff. And we'll have you back real soon. Les, thank you so much for the time, my friend.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Yes, ma'am. Back to her tell. Uh, have you heard tell about what's going on in Pakistan? This is shocking tragedy. Almost a third of the country is underwater, at least 1100 people are dead. They think that'll go up a lot more. 14% of the population directly affected by generational flooding. It is absolutely apocalyptic. There was a uh, news reporter. For the bbc and she was doing a live hit and you would have thought she was in front of a lake and she's like no there's no water within 30 miles of here this is how much rain they've had um on top of it all the pakistani government controversially decided to breach one of the dams of one of the largest lakes in the country that didn't work it caused even more flooding they may do it again it is a god-awful mess over there it is an absolute tragedy it is a terrible tragedy is from uh, pbs Uh, Flooding caused by torrential monsoon rains have claimed the lives of more than 1,100 people in Pakistan since June, while millions have been left stranded and desperate for immediate aid. Pakistan has received nearly three times its national 30-year average just this season. A third of the nation's land is underwater, and more than 33 million Pakistanis, nearly 14% of the population, have been affected by the ongoing deluge, according to the United Nations and the National Disaster Management Authority of Pakistan. About 735,000 livestock have been lost, and more than 2 million acres of farmlands have been damaged. This is the part of the story you got to understand. The region that's really getting hit here, the central regions of Pakistan, that's where they grow their food. That's the agricultural regions, that's where their livestock are. This is going to have multiple gear effects, this flooding and a significant toll, back to PBS, for Pakistan's agricultural sector, which accounts for almost a fifth of the nation's GDP and employs more than a third of the nation's workers. Pakistan's top climate official called the crisis a climate-induced humanitarian disaster of epic proportion. Pakistan was already facing disastrous effects. Now the most devastating monsoon rains in a decade are causing incessant destruction across the country. Um, U.S. aid announced Tuesday it will be sending an additional $30 million in humanitarian assistance to Pakistan, the United Nations Central Emergency Response Fund already agreed to $3 million in urgent health, food security, water sanitation, and nutritional services. That money will go to the 90,000 Pakistanis who have been the most affected. Meanwhile, Pakistan's government has pledged to make payments to each family affected by the flood in the Sindh, Balochistan, Punjab, and Khyber, Patu. I'm not even going to try that word. I apologize. But it's long. as has got a W and a bunch of H's. And hillbillies just don't fare well, so just trust me provinces. Under the flood release cash assistance program, they're going to spend the rough equivalent to 74 million U.S. They've already dispensed more than 250,000 families. As the flood ravaged country waits for more assistance from around the world, here's some of the ways you can help. Uh, I don't recommend UNICEF, but that's listed here. Pakistan Red Crescent Society, that's their equivalent to the Red Cross, uh, is monitoring. They're active in 92 district branches. Humanity and Inclusion is working to distribute food uh, International Medical Corps has 4,500 patients within the Khyber uh, province that are giving out water purification tablets to combat the spread of waterborne illnesses. The uh, al khulman Foundation Pakistan is a nonprofit that has opened a flood release agency. muslim Aid Pakistan has a well-established flood emergency network along with muslim made UK, US, and the START network. Pakistani cricketer Shahid Afridi's foundation, which has been active since 2014 has set up a specific relief operation in the Balochistan province. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. It's helping more than 4,000 households through the Sindh and Balochistan provinces by distributing food. All these links will be in the show notes. If you want to give, if you can give, please do again. This is not just the flooding. This is taking out the heart of their agricultural sector, which means this season and probably next season, they're going to have all kinds of food shortages and other issues. A third of the country underwater, a massive humanitarian disaster. Pray for those folks. If you can give to those folks, great. We'll continue to update the story as we go forward on HerdTel. I'm doing it on for Hertel for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. More great guests coming up in this week. You can always reach us at Show at the gmail.com. Show on the twitter.com. We'd love to hear from you. We've done whole segments just based on your feedback. So please send us your questions, your comments, your feedback. Agreed, disagreed. Love to hear from you. Keep your bearing. but We want to hear from you. Also, however you're watching or listening, the podcasting platforms on YouTube Make sure you're leaving comments, ratings, and share us on your social media. Let people know our program is worth their time because we're never going to uh, waste yours. It's the most precious thing you have. You giving us an hour a day to keep the caterwauling away, we greatly appreciate you. So Until we talk to you again on Hurt Tell, wherever you are across the street around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well-fed. Talk to you again real soon for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.